back with you, uh, I have to turn this off. As I was starting to say, nice to be back with you this afternoon in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard a little bit about the boss, huh? Well, I, I want to affirm here, according to the scriptures, I'm the head of this marriage, but, uh, but uh, my wife is the neck. And as I understand it, sometimes the neck can turn a head. <laughs> I want to start you out. Uh, this is a uh, two-session afternoon before supper. Runs to approximately 6 o'clock, give or take a few minutes, with the liberty you've given me. And somewhere about halfway through, as the subject material gets to a point, we can do that. We'll take a short break in which there'll be a song or whatever follows that. But to begin with, I'm going, I know not everybody was here last night, so I'm going to do a slight review. So if you could go to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, please. The Revelation of Jesus Christ chapter 11. And we're looking at God's world plan. God's world plan. As revealed in prophecy. You, you look at Revelation 11, verse 15. 11, 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God does bless the reading of his word. We'll read more later on. As we started to consider God's world plan last night, we know there's two major phases to it. There's God's future world plan, where this world is headed and what will happen after that. But there's also God's present world plan. We began last night with God's future world plan, and we started to use some objects. And those that were with us last night, we used a common garbage bag full of trash and garbage. And we said if you could boil it down into one word where this world is headed to, it's the word destruction. In 1 Thessalonians 5.3, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, and they shall not escape. And the great cataclysmic judgment coming, that just like this garbage bag, it's headed for the incinerator, for the dumpster, for the landfill. And so in that sense, the world is likened to this garbage bag headed for destruction. Now we also commented that while this garbage bag is indeed headed for destruction, it serves a present purpose now. And that is it confines the germs and the corruption all in one place. So you can enjoy this room without a smell and flies all over the place because this contains it. And the government of nations are ordained of God, even though the world is headed for destruction. There is no power but of God, Romans 13.1. goes on to say in Romans 13.4, speaking of governmental leaders, that he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And so without law and order, you'd have absolutely, absolute anarchy and chaos. You couldn't walk the streets even in the daytime. And so they're here to give a measure of law and order. But in spite of God using the nations now, they are headed for destruction. And we learned that last night a bit. And then we went into God's present world plan, 
And it's not destroying the world yet. That, that, that will come on a certain day called the great day of his wrath. But we remarked last night that sometimes you might know people who are garbage pickers, you know. And they go in there and they find something they believe they can salvage. And we learned last night in Acts 15, 14, how God at the first did visit the Gentiles, the nations, to take out of them a people for his name. That God has a plan of salvation. And we'll just uh, quickly illustrate what we did in detail last night. That God's program for this present world plan is the program of salvation. Salvation. Not changing the world. Not renovation yet. Not changing the system and its politics and everything. But he's visiting the world before this destruction in a rescue operation with the gospel of Christ, which is called the power of God unto salvation. And he calls to the world through this gospel, reaching into a world headed for destruction, and those stained in sin and guilt before God. Yet he came into the world to save sinners. And when they come to the one who died for their sins, the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world, well, we learned that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The remission of sins. And we're now clean. And because we're clean... Peter not only promised the remission of sins in Acts 2.38, he promised the gift of the Holy Ghost, that he comes into our heart. He comes into our heart, and we now have the life and light of God. We can understand. In the language of 2 Corinthians 4.6, but God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts also to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that a believer is looked at as somebody who is clean, forgiven of all their sin, because Christ died for their sins. And then the Holy Ghost, God the Spirit, has come into them, giving them light and understanding. And we're under the blood of Christ. And he does this for people from every nation and people and kindred and tongue. Uh, actually a fourfold division of humanity. So whatever nation, dialect, age, or whatever, if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And he calls this company that's called out from the destruction with a unique term, the church. For the word church means a called out company. Called out from this present evil world. Galatians 1.4 says, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. And Christ is the head of the church. And we're called out of this world. It's destruction and it's a lifestyle. And he's building his church. Upon this rock I will build my church. That's his present world plan. Future will be destruction before he brings the kingdom of God. But the present world plan is at the same time this world's headed for destruction, he's calling out through the gospel, through salvation, and building this church of cleansed people, of people with new life and having light that know their God, of which the living Lord Jesus Christ is the head of that one church. Now, that, that is a very short review of what we covered last night. One more verse on review. If you would go to Acts chapter 2, please. The book of Acts chapter 2. And this is where that gospel of salvation was first proclaimed on Pentecost after Christ died and rose again. And Acts 2 and verse 47, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church 
daily such as should be saved. We learned last night that it is not the church that brings you to salvation. It doesn't say the Lord added to salvation such as we're in the church. <laughs> but the Lord added to the church such as we're being saved. You see, it is salvation that brings you into this body, this family called the church, this called out company. It is not the church that makes you saved. And so we see the formation of the church, this spiritual building that is saved from the destruction of the world and dwelt with the living God, and he's building his church of which Christ is the head. Now, having said that, having said that, I want to bring some other illustrations out for today. Some we'll use more tomorrow. But we've already learned that the reason he's destroying this world, and it's like a garbage bag, is because it's corrupt. It's like the corruption inside a garbage bag. I'll, just for a second, I'll put this up here, hoping it will stay stable. That represents Satan's world system. He's, Satan is called the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's the prince and power of the air. And, and the whole world lies under the control of the wicked one, teaches 1 John 5.19. And so this whole world is controlled by a deceiver, a rebel of God. Yet at the same time this world exists, simultaneously, he is building his church in connection with this world. He hasn't removed this, and it would be a very easy environment. But he's left the domain of Satan here, and we're in this world, but we're functioning attached to heaven, the living Lord Jesus, as the church of God. And so we have this world system under Satan, and that's why it's headed to destruction. It is in rebellion. But for those who repent and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, the Savior, they're called out to become the church of God. Now, having said that, we also learned in Revelation 11:15 today when we read that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. There's going to be a replacement someday that God is going to do away with the kingdoms of this world under Satan. They're coming to sudden destruction and it will be replaced with the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And when that happens, everything will change from government to economics to environment. Everything will change. We hope to look more at the kingdom tomorrow, but it will not happen till this comes to a sudden destruction. This will replace this. So this is not in the play of our teaching today because we haven't got that far. But Lord willing, it will be tomorrow, so we'll just lay this aside for now. Now having said that, if the kingdom of God has not come yet, and the Lord prayed, taught to pray in Matthew 16, or should I say Matthew 6.10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. His will isn't done on earth today as it is in heaven. But when the kingdom of God comes, it will be done on earth just like heaven. So heaven will be on earth. But we don't have the kingdom of God yet. And so the answer for the Christian today, when we come to the calling of the church today, uh, we are not called to change this world. So to speak, going back to our garbage bag, let's, put the, let's just put it in a cleaner bag, you know, and kind of make it change the infrastructure. Or some might approach it this way, yeah, mm, that's smelly, you know. I'm going to get involved in social causes and you know, kind of make it smell better, you know. You can't smell this, but I can. <laughs> that doesn't change this destiny or, or the corruption that's in it. That just might disguise it for a few minutes. That is not God's answer. 
this church that he's building, this church that he's building, what is our purpose? Why are we here? Why not just take us right home to heaven? Why leave us here simultaneously in Satan's evil system? What is the calling of the church? He said, I will build my church. And brothers and sisters, this brings us to God's present world plan. Future world plan, we talked about the part of destruction last night. Tomorrow, the replacement part of it with the kingdom of God, Lord willing. But we've arrived at God's uh, present world plan. It's through the gospel of salvation. First, he saves us and cleanses us and comes into us with life and light. And uh, we know our God, but is that all there is to it? Does he have a plan for the church? And what we'd like to do in this session, if I could bring one more object out. And what this object will help us do, Lord willing, is understand the fourfold calling of the church. As you study the Word of God, and we'll just put this up here carefully, representing the church of God of which the Lord Jesus is the risen head, that he left us on this earth in Satan's domain, but not of Satan's domain, with a fourfold calling, which brings us to God's present world plan concerning the church of God. I'd like to show you this. It's in various scriptures, but we're going to start out in the book of Ephesians. You're going to find all four in Ephesians as well as other places of the Bible. So, so let's go to Ephesians chapter uh, 5, please. Ephesians chapter 5. All of these callings are going to start with the letter B to help you remember. Some of them happen quite naturally in the Bible. There's a fourfold calling to the church, and the one I'm looking at here in the book of Ephesians, we can call our outward calling. We have an outward calling toward this world. He left us here because there's a ministry to this world under Satan that lies in wickedness. And that ministry, we function as a light that is a beacon, shining forth as a beacon, as a light to a dark world perishing, that we hold out a light of hope, a light of salvation. Now, having said that, I have you in Ephesians chapter 5, writing to those who are already saved. You look here, and we'll break in here in Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, verse 6. Ephesians 5 and verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. That's that future destruction. Verse 7. Be ye not therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful darks, works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Look at, look at verse 13. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. In a world of darkness, and we read about darkness, it's Satan blinds to the truth. He's blinded the minds of them that believe not, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The world is described in 
Ephesians 4.18, as having their understanding darkened. They guess at who God is. They think we got here evolution, you know, from the goo to zoo to you. Just all kind of foolish things here. And, and they profess to be wise, but they become fools in their darkness and deception of Satan. His kingdom in Colossians 1.13 is called the power of darkness. And it lies in his grasp. But those who have been born again, the church, he has shined in our hearts. We're not in darkness. We're children of the light. And we have a ministry to the world. Now, we could say, and it would be scriptural to say, in Mark 16, 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Verse 16 goes on to say. And so there's this taking out to the world a saving gospel that they too can be saved from the wrath of God. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. But if they call on him, they can come out of this destiny and lifestyle and be part of the church. But in taking that gospel as a beacon and shining forth, as I read these scriptures that will call us to be a light to a dark world, it will not so much emphasize what you say, although that's important. We have to give the word of truth. It will emphasize our actions, what we do as born-again believers. And it's our actions as born-again believers that are meant to grab the attention of a world in darkness and say, boy, they are different. And they might inquire and see the change and hope you have is in the gospel of Christ and come to seek out your Savior too. So while it's true we need to communicate this gospel, the scriptures that we'll refer to us as a beacon or a light will put the emphasis on lifestyle. Look at it again. I read it here in Ephesians, but look, look here at verse 8 again. Ephesians 5 and verse 8. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. It, it's our walk. And part of that is verse 11 again. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So if we fellowship with them, and we find ourselves, so to speak, in the same bed with the world, doing things they do, watching things they do, and there's no distinction. Oh, they're not going to see a difference. If, we, if we're living like dark people live, how can they see? You know, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, when he was on earth, Let your light so shine before men that they may, by your good works which they see, glorify your Father which is in heaven. And he points to our good works which we're saved unto. Uh, not fellowshipping with the works of darkness. I want to take you to another scripture that's going to show us we're a beacon of light. And yes, we're to give the word, but it's with a solid lifestyle behind it. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2. Right after Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2, another prison epistle. And he exhorts the believers this way in verse 14. Philippians 2 and verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's without complaining, always arguing and debating. Well, why is that? Verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights 
in the world. Verse 16, holding forth the word of life. We hold forth this word of life. We, we, we need to be true in proclaiming the gospel of salvation. How do they hear without a preacher? You know? But in doing that, we are to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Right in the middle of satanic kingdom, this present evil world, he's left the church to be a beacon of light. And it is by our lifestyle that the emphasis is, without murmurings, without disputing, holy, harmless, the sons of God. And so through the Holy Spirit, as you love one another, you know the Lord Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you get an A plus in Bible school, no. if you love one another. And so it's this changed lifestyle, this holiness, and it grabs the attention of the world. It's not that we all have to be, quote, Billy Graham's out preaching. Different people are called to different things, okay? But it's the everyday lifestyle of the believer that can attract attention as you hold forth the word of life. And so once again, we see it's lifestyle. Go with me again to 1 Peter 2, to another scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2, and you'll see it again. It's not the only place either. 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, look at verse 9, please, uh, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <laughs> You've been called out of darkness, church, called out, you know, into his marvelous light. Uh, well, look what it says next, uh, just a verse or two later, verse 11, 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Some abstinence here by the power of the Holy Spirit. Things you have to say no to with your eyes and with your affiliations and that, because they will work on you, because we have sin in us. To abstain from fleshly lust. Well, why is that? Verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Let me just stop there for a minute. The Gentiles are the nations, everybody but the Jewish nation. And so they're looked at as the nations. And we're to have our conversation honest. Some of you with other translations will have your lifestyle, your conduct honest among the Gentiles. And that's correct. But the King James uh, translators were not out of it when they translated conduct as conversation, because guess what your conduct does? It converses. It communicates a message. And so our lifestyle is preaching. And so they will look at that word conduct or lifestyle and translate it conversation because it communicates. And among the Gentiles, our conversation is to be honest. Now, I'll look at verse 12 again. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Same thing our Lord said. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That they will speak against you as evildoers at times. They'll say, you're bigoted, you're this, you're that, you're not loving but there's a day God might visit them. I don't know how. A disease, the work of his Holy Spirit, an accident, however it is. 
And in that day of visitation, they'll remember you maybe, and glorify God in the day of visitation when, by the good works which they beheld. They might deny him at the present and speak as you as an evildoer, but deep down in it has been a witness to them. And just maybe they might glorify God in the day of visitation. And so as we start to see, brothers and sisters, God has left the church here, and one of our callings is an outward calling out toward the world, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, that we function as a beacon to a world in total darkness. You know, when the Lord Jesus was here, he said, I am the light of the world. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, went on to say. But he said, if any man come to me, he shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. But he's not here. He died. He ascended. So the light of the world is not directly here, but he is here. He has sent his spirit into the church. And even the local churches in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, they're looked at as lampstands. It says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we function as a beacon. We are God's light on earth today through the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Now, as important as that is, and as true as that is, our outward calling to this dark, dark world with the word of life, with, with the salvation plan of God, backed up by our lifestyle, which grabs their attention, helps them see the light. Is that our only calling? There are some well-meaning believers, and they just seem to stop right here. Got to get the gospel out, they've got to live, and praise the Lord for that. But I want to tell you, there's three other callings. There's three other reasons he's left this church here. We're not just one thing, we are at least four major things to God. I want to move to another calling, that we're not just a beacon light. The Word of God will also teach that we are a building. Now put this up here, and it'll make sense in a couple minutes, hopefully. Not only a beacon light, but the church is left here as a building. Now we saw in the epistle to the Ephesians that we, we are light in Christ Jesus, children of light. Also in Ephesians, we learn we're a building. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, please. We'll deal with one more calling before our break, and then when we're done with this one, which will take a little while, and then we'll have our midway break. But you go to Ephesians chapter 2, please. And uh, writing to these people who have come near to the Lord by blood, have been saved, just show you that, for example, in 2.13. Ephesians 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. So these are people now near to God, cleansed from their sin. Now look what he tells them in verse 20. Verse 20 of uh, Ephesians 2. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom... All the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom, that's Christ, ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We are God's building. In fact, we'll see it in a minute. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 says, ye are God's building. 
God still lives on this earth, but He's not the God of this world. They have rejected Him. He's not the governor of this world, but there is a place on earth He lives, and it is a church that's called, that you are God's building, the habitation of God. Now, when God looks at His church as a building, He's not looking at a physical edifice. That's Old Testament language. You know, the temple, the tabernacle. He, he dwelt in these physical buildings. But he, his program is now new. And, you know, we learn in the gospel in Acts 7.48. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. You know, when my wife and I travel, uh, we get to go to the old country sometimes. And they'll show us these ancient edifices, these cathedrals and buildings with stained glass and carved wood ornaments and cathedrals reaching into the heavens. And they're quite impressive to walk through. And the verse goes through my mind. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. You see, this born-again church, it is a spiritual house. Peter will refer to it this way in 1 Peter 2.5. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house. It's not a physical house now. It's born-again people. This is the church, not the walls that keep the rain off our head. We are God's sanctuary, the believers, the living stones. Now, that's an important truth. To understand it's not the building that's the church. It is the people, the living stones born again with a light in them under the blood of Christ that he now looks at as a church of God. So the church of God is not a building. I had a preacher friend of mine once, and he was preaching. And when he was done preaching, a lady came up to him after the meeting. She said, did you see those young people in the back of the sanctuary chewing gum? He said, I didn't see that. But what I did see, the sanctuary was chewing gum. <laughs> and he got the point across that, that we have to understand we are the church. Now, as important as that truth is, and it is very important, to understand that we are the temple of God, we, we are the building of God, while the church is not a building, some will reason this way, well, the church isn't a building. So there has to be, there needs to be no protocol, needs to be no ornaments. Uh, uh, we just kind of a free for all, relaxed thing, just do what you want because the church is not a building. It is true the church is not a building, but it's also true the church is the temple of God. What kind of spiritual building are we? Well, I just told you here. Look at it again in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21 in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. That we are his temple, his sanctuary on earth today where God resides, not only individually but corporately in the church. We are the temple of God. You know, when you find out what you are, that defines your, char your character, what, what should happen there. Let, let me show you this one other place. Well, it's more than one other place, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, please. That while we're not a building, we are the temple of God. And that is a character the epistles will try to make the Christians see not to lose and be in God's house, that you are the temple of God. Look, look at verse 9 here. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 3, 9. For we are laborers together with God... Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Okay, you, you are God's building. It goes on to say our foundation is Jesus Christ. This is a spiritual building. Well, what kind of building are we? 
Are we a sports stadium? If we're a sports stadium, then we're here to entertain. Are we a concert hall? Are we a doctor's office where we're just to heal everybody? Are we a counselor's office where we psychiatrically we're to deal with people? Are we a halfway gospel mission house where the only thing the church does when it comes together is just preach the gospel? What kind of building are we? Well, it tells you right here. Look at verse 16. Same thing we read in Ephesians, but now to the local assembly. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Okay, you're the temple of God. It's true we're not a building, but it's also true that we are His temple. And that defines our character. Look at verse 17. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? You are the temple, and it's holy. The key trademark of the temple of God is holiness. We were teaching the men up at Camp Horizon in the tabernacle. The two rooms in the sanctuary were called the holy place and the most holy place. Not the happy places. God's not against joy in the Lord. Don't get me wrong here. But as Psalm 93, 5 says, Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. Holiness is separation, a cleansing from what defiles and offends God and a consecration to God himself. Holiness. And it is this very Corinthian church that had to be reminded of that. They were allowing kind of a free-for-all in the assembly where you could be living in sin and they, that glory and the grace of God is that we don't judge, you know, is the implication. And Paul says, don't you know that person living in sin has to be taken away from among you? Put away from among yourselves that wicked person? 1 Corinthians 5.13, excommunication. You see, the church takes on a character. It's just not a ball game where you go and you pay a ticket at the gate, you, you pay your money, and you go in there, and it's kind of a free-for-all. You all get excited about the performers on the field, and they're not really concerned as long as you don't bring a gun into the stadium. They're not really concerned about what your beliefs are or how much you drink, as you know, up to a point. And it's really nobody's business as long as you're having a good time. Is that the church? Or is it the character of a temple? That sometimes there has to be discipline and inquiry and things like that. Look further on this. If you go to the next epistle of the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, please. That we are God's building, but specifically His temple. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, break in at that famous verse of verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Now we're not speaking of being friendly to somebody. We're speaking of being yoked with somebody in a union where you and them are in the same union, so what they do affects you. Hmm. Such as belonging to a false religion, and what the leaders do will affect you. you know? uh, an unequal yoke marriage. What one does, they take the other with them. You're affected. He's speaking of unions here. And he goes on to say here, look at verse 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said... I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
You are the temple of the living God. So is there a character to knowing you're the temple? Well, there is. Verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And he goes on to say, as sons and daughters, that we need to be separate from things that defile and offend God. Because this is his temple. It's holy. It's where God lives. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. We're the habitation of God. So while it might not bother you some things in the church, you need to ask, does it bother God? Because it's holy. It needs to be separate from these things. L look at the next verse, which is chapter 7 and verse 1. It's a continuation of thought. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. When you read about the temple, you read about holiness. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. A cleansing, a removing of, of moral filth, and a removing of spiritual filth, religious error. And so there's perfecting holiness in the fear of God of separation, and then also later, consecration. So, so we start to see that God does have a dwelling place on earth, but it is church. It's not in the sports stadiums, not to say there's no saved Christian athletes. It's not in the political white houses and palaces, not to say there's no saved uh, uh, Christian politicians. But he does dwell in this unique body called the church. And when Peter describes it, he will describe our calling as the temple of God, that is, as a spiritual house, not as an outward calling as the beacon. That was an outward calling. But now we're going to see that we have an upward calling a calling toward the heart of God himself. We're his temple. And so we need to minister to the heart of God. And that's the way Peter will begin to present it. Well, let me show you that as we get into our upward calling just a little bit. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, please. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's wonderful to understand your outward calling. But don't stop there. You're God's building. There is an Upward calling. And here's the way Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2. I quoted this verse, but now we'll read it. Uh, look at verse 5. He tells these born-again believers this. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. All right, we're not a physical building. We're a spiritual house. Not made of uh, beautiful windows and this, but living stones with Christ in us, right here, pictured here. But he goes on to say in verse 5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. As God's holy priesthood functioning in His temple, we are to offer up. It is an upward calling. We're to give God spiritual sacrifices. We're not here to study all those spiritual sacrifices this afternoon. But one of them, in Hebrews 13, 15, puts it this way. By him, the Lord Jesus, let us offer, let us offer. You say, offer what? The sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. 
And it is a sacrifice. People will think you're foolish or your own ego might be hurt. I'll make a fool out of myself. And, but to offer God the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. To be thankful, to adore God, to love God and His Son, the Lord Jesus. And to lift up praises to God in a world that doesn't. You know, this dark world under Satan is described in Romans 1.21. When they knew God, neither were they thankful nor glorified Him as God. They don't give God thanks for His beloved Son. They don't glorify Him. The name of Jesus Christ is a curse word to many. They don't look at God's way for salvation. They go by the lust of the flesh. They have a certain amount of religion, but it's to satisfy uh, their conscience not to yield to God's way through the Lord Jesus. And so we live in a dark world that does not glorify God. Does God get any glory? He does through His church. As a temple, we, ha we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What do you think it does to the heart of God when he looks at this world under the control of Satan? Whole world life and wickedness. But here's this called out company by the gospel of the church. And wherever they're at, wherever they're at, in China or in Kenya, Africa, where we just were. My wife and I just had the privilege of being in Kenya. We had to drive six, seven hours out into the bush. When we got there, they took us in a car on Sunday morning through roads that, even though they had an SUV, I didn't, I just didn't think we'd get there. I mean, they're not even fair to call them roads, all right? Animals all over the place, potholes, pools. Somehow he got there, and we parked in this grassy field. He said, we'll be walking the final 20 minutes. We get to this hut in the middle of Africa where the Maasai tribes meet, and there the Maasai tribe had a table, and we're remembering the Lord with bread and wine. <laughs> there they were. And so, so we see that wherever they're at, in this dark, dark world, the gospel has formed a people, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We cannot forget as the temple of God, as His holy temple, that the function as a holy priesthood that we're involved in offering up, giving God praise and worship and thanksgiving in a world that does not, that's in rejection, and so God is getting his portion through his temple, uh, desiring his portion. Our upward calling. Now, having said that, having said that, I'd like to show you a picture of that in the Old Testament. To show you what happened at the tabernacle and temple of God in the Old Testament, it'll help us understand our spiritual responsibility. So in this session, I believe it will be the last scripture for this session, let's go to Leviticus chapter 1. Let's go to the book of Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1, the, the tabernacle, which was the forerunner to the Jewish temple, it was the portable tent because they were on the move to their inheritance. Uh, this portable temple, this tabernacle, has finally been set up by Moses, the sanctuary that God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. And we talked about this just recently at Camp Horizon. But the first instructions God gives concerning this tabernacle, you might say, what is God's house here for? It doesn't save you. No, it doesn't save you. Then why have it? You say, well, it's to help me. Well, there's a certain truth to that, to help you grow. But that's not the big truth. There's an upward calling it is for God, and to give God what this world doesn't give him. 
His first instructions to Israel in this new tabernacle were this, in Leviticus chapter 1, and look at verse 1. Verse 1. And the Lord called unto Moses, and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord. Let me just stop there. The very first instructions of God in his new house was if any man, and that's the Hebrew word for man or woman, human being, all right? If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord. The, the first principle of God's house is a place where God's redeemed people come to bring something to God. I've said this here before, I understand, but we need to be stirred up by way of remembrance. It's not to come to get, first of all. How many people do you hear concerning the local church will say, I don't get anything out of it? Hmm. I got a better question. Did you give God anything that day? What did God get out of it? Is your God worth bringing something to him and you getting nothing tangibly out of it? Oh, he gives us salvation. He gives us Christ. God is a giver. But can you give back to him? The first purpose of the temple of God is to offer up. It means you're giving something away. You're offering spiritual sacrifices in our case. The physical sac sacrifices were a picture. Can you imagine going to somebody, say, a very special birthday party, maybe their 50th birthday party, and everybody's gathering with gifts, and you just don't bring anything. And you say, ah, they don't need a gift, so you don't bring anything. And then I, I'm on the way out, and I hear you discussion with your friend. What a bad party that was. I didn't enjoy it. I said, why didn't you enjoy it? Nobody gave me anything. Oh, I, I thought it was about the person you were honoring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a time to... So the first principle here in Leviticus chapter 1 is to bring an offering to the Lord. In this particular offering, it was called the burnt offering. You know what would happen to the burnt offering? It could be a bullock or a lamb, or if you didn't have much, it could be a turtle dove. But imagine a bullock. Imagine a bullock. Weighs maybe at least a ton. You, you could sell that on the market and, or get a few steaks out of it for the family, huh? You're going to give this to the priest. He's going to strip the skin off it. Then watch what the priest does with it in verse 9. Verse 9. We don't want this crown falling to the floor, my goodness. Because that's not going to happen. We'll see tomorrow. <laughs> but look at verse 9 of Leviticus 1. Verse 9. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor or sweet aroma unto the Lord. Unto the Lord. That whole sacrifice is burnt. It goes up in ashes and flame, and there's ashes left. Priests got the skins. You know what you got as an offer, physically speaking? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, you saw, you know, maybe a month's income just go up in smoke. And you didn't get a thing. Is your God worth that? To show your appreciation and appropriation of God and the Lord Jesus, uh, can, can you bring God something in this church? It doesn't always have to be about you. You know, speaking of the festivals of Israel, when they'd come together to the house of God in Jerusalem, he would say in the Old Testament, none shall appear before me empty. We as priests need to have something to give God. Now, it's not physical animals anymore. It's spiritual sacrifices. But you know what? You want to give God what he wants. You want to give God what he wants. So look, let's go back to verse 2 of Leviticus 1. 
So speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring of your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Number one, where do you offer it? You can say, well, on my back porch, I'll just give God a good old bullock. Now, worship has feet to it. He wants us to gather together corporately. There's a sacrifice to worship. I, know, I realize you can do it in your living room, and there's a time for that. But there's a corporate worship at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. What did you bring him? In this case, a male without blemish. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And it had to be a male in this case. And it had to be an animal offering. You see, you're bringing to God what he wants. You know what I hear in the church today? I, I see agendas. Well, we want my type of music in there and my type of this and my type. You know, it's not about you. You want to give God what he wants. You know, I happen to love spinach. I know I've used that before. I, I, anything spinach I can eat. My wife isn't the biggest fan of spinach. So on her birthday, what would she think if I took her out to lunch and bought her a spinach souffle? Why did you do this, honey? Well, I love spinach, honey. <laughs> you see, you're giving to the other person. We don't have to guess what these sacrifices are. We don't even have to begin to guess. New Testament tells us. Comes to the Lord Jesus. And Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor or aroma. They all speak of God's Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by him we offer the sacrifice of praise. In a world that doesn't, we give him thanks and adoration of his son, the Lord Jesus. We can do it personally, but there's a sacrifice coming to the door, so to speak, in Old Testament language, of coming together and having something to give to God. Now, if you're in the world, if you're filling yourself with the garbage of the world, you're not going to have anything to give them. You're going to need a worship team to do it for you. You're going to have to hire somebody to do it for you because you, know, you're just, you don't have anything inside. And that's the problem today. We hire the professional to do it for us because we're not filling our hearts. And so to give something to God, they had to have a bullock first of all. And so we've we got to spend time with God and the Lord Jesus. And as he fills our heart, we can give it back to him. Our adoration, our appreciation. And it's unto the Lord. We already noticed that in verse 2. Un, or in verse 9. Let me reread the end of verse 9. Leviticus 1 verse 9. An offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now just turn the page in most Bibles and go to another offering in 2.9. It's a meal offering, grain offering. Leviticus 2 and verse 9. And the priest shall take from the meat offering a memorial thereof and shall burn it up on the altar. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Lord always gets his portion. Look at chapter 3, another offering. Same results. Verse 16. 3.16 of Leviticus. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire and a sweet savor. All the fat is the Lord's. And so the Lord had his portion again. And it was a sweet aroma. And then even part of the sin offering was for the Lord. Look at chapter 4 of Leviticus and verse 31. 431. 
431, And he shall take away all the fat thereof, as the fat is taken away from off the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And then even the trespass offering was for the Lord. If you look at chapter 5 and verse 6. Chapter 5 and verse 6. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord. There is an upward calling. Yes, yes, we're, we're, we're God's light. We're the beacon. There's an outward calling. But don't stop there, believer. In, in, in a sense, the gospel takes you somewhere. It makes you part of the building of God. That you are God's temple. And that as God's temple, the main function is holy offerings acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That there's an upward calling. That you're not wasting your time. You're not neglecting world affairs. You say, but the world is crumbling around us. I understand. That's what has to happen. And he'll take care of the world someday when he replaces it. But right now, we're involved just like they were in the Old Testament. We were telling the men up at camp, that sanctuary, the holy place of the tabernacle, was only 30 feet by 15. That little spot on planet Earth was where offerings or ministry was happening to God. And in the outside courtyard, the offerings went up. Just a little plot of real estate. And when you come together, you're a small speck in this world, but it's where God gets his offerings in a world that doesn't. So may we understand, and you know, sisters in the public assembly can't do it orally according to 1 Corinthians 14, but they can lift their hearts. God will hear your heart and pour it out. You, you, you can offer up worship too. He'll hear it. And offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Well, we've arrived at our break time. And we've started to look at the calling of the church, that we function as a beacon light and we function as a building that is a temple. As wonderful as those truths are, the present plan of God, his present world plan, is building a church through the gospel of salvation. There's two more major callings. They both start with the letter B. That's after our break, so we'll call on the brother uh, to lead us into the break. May God bless his word.